You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. So the same Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I am Nathan Gilmore, an associate professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. And joining me this fine, fine morning is Dr. Michael Farmer, who's an assistant professor of English at Crown College. Uh, Michael, how are those papers coming? <laughs> they're not, I think. Either that or they're just they're continuing to build, and eventually they'll crush me like those people who uh, who keep towers of old newspapers in their tiny apartments. <laughs> That's my future. Michael Farmer, paper hoarder. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and, and, and the, uh, the voice of ascent there is Dr. David Grubbs. He's an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. Uh, David, how's your semester closing? Yeah, I'm also hoarding papers. <laughs> and see, so. folks, this is why I collect all mine digitally, because a uh, jump drive with 100 ungraded papers looks the same as one with 10. <laughs> well, f- for me, I mean, we have Turnitin at, uh, at our school, but uh, I- I've discovered pretty quickly using Turnitin that everything on the Internet is more interesting than grading on the Internet. <laughs> David, do you uh, have you ever used? There, there's a program called Self Control that'll block all websites, but the one you want to use for a period of time, and it works so well, in fact, that if you uninstall the program, it continues to block until the time is up. Yeah, but isn't that only on like the one browser? And I've got three. I think you can probably <laughs> install it on all of your browsers, David. <laughs> if, yeah. if you're if you're that untrustworthy. I, I'm profoundly untrustworthy when it comes to grading on the internet. Consider this an official recommendation for a <laughs> PhD for self-control. It's a pretty cool program. And if they want to pay oh, me for nice. saying that, I'll be happy to take their money. Excellent. <laughs> uh, if anyone in particular wants to send me money, I'll also uh, take it. But uh, Na- I do Nathan talk will say bit. anything anybody wants him to for money. <laughs> yes, yes, uh, this this podcast brought to you by uh, Hillary Clinton for president. No, I, I say. <laughs> ooh, ooh, be care- uh, be yeah. careful. What if Jedediah Purdy hears? Oh, man. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think listeners who have listened to more than two episodes will know what a joke that was. But uh, I do want to talk a little bit about politics. And namely, uh, I want to invite listeners to download subscribe and subscribe to and download your new favorite politics podcast, The City of Man. Featuring Edward Song and Coyle Neal. It's our newest show here on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. They have got three episodes up and ready to be downloaded. Uh, and, I mean, so far, I mean, the, the, I think they've just been delightful. Uh, I mean, have you guys had a chance to listen yet? 
I've listened to the first two episodes. I still have What is Conservatism again sitting on my iPhone. I, yeah, I really like them, and I, I guess it's a, a hallmark of my, mo- of my moderateness that I can't... Every time one of them speaks, I think, yeah, that's right. And then when the other contradicts them, I think, yeah, that's right, too. <laughs> very good, very good. Yeah, uh, I've also, it too. Also coming up will be the uh, second in the complementarianism egalitarianism series on the christian feminist podcast the first one was mm-hmm. quite good i anticipate the second will likewise be great uh trying to think what else uh sectarian seconds should be coming out soon although I, i've been dilly-dallying about getting uh, danny to tell me when that's going to upload uh but lots going on on the network uh, we actually took a, I, I think, our first break since 2015 on Christian Humanist Profiles this week. Uh, but all that said, there will be some more profiles coming down the pike as well. Just keep watching, keep subscribing, keep listening, keep writing in, because we love hearing from our listeners. Uh, any other network news, guys? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. All right, excellent. Dude, does anybody well, stay- know when Book of Nature is coming back? Uh, I assume Dan is drowning, and that's the problem. I, I mean, it's his first year as a professor at Purdue. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and I know that uh, Todd's work in Japan is also taking a lot of his time, so right. uh, I, I think that crew is just kind of in a place where, you know, the next podcast might be down the line a wee bit. And it's harder to find replacements for that show than for this one, because they're special. <laughs> it's not like one of us could go on and cover for Todd. It's not like any, David can well, talk about particle physics. Any old hack can do what we do. I well, mean, yeah. we're, a, we're a generalist show, so when one of us is missing, <laughs> we, we structure the show around whoever we bring in. So, mm-hmm. we, I mean, we don't really have an excuse for not letting the show go on, as it were. Right, 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 right. Well, at any rate, today's episode is part two of our uh, our regular uh, trilogy. We usually do one of those each academic semester. This time we are talking about the Jedediah Purdy book for Common Things, Irony, Trust, and Commitment in America Today. Uh, today we're going to be talking about chapters three and four of that book. I strongly recommend that before you listen to this episode, if you ain't done so yet, you go ahead and listen to the first part. What we talk about today will make a great deal of sense uh, if you know what we've done up to this point, and less so if you don't. <laughs> so, Michael, this leg of the journey starts as Purdy takes on a line of inquiry that our listeners should find familiar, namely the developments and changes in what particular words mean. So talk our listeners through the changes of greatest concern when it comes to the words public and private. Well, in um, in common usage, the word public has kind of a negative uh, connotation to it. So you think of like a public restroom, and when you go into a public restroom, you just hope that it's not completely covered in urine and is only partially covered in urine. Uh, <laughs> public schools tend to be seen by everyone other than Nathan Gilmore as the sort of thing you send your kids to if you don't have time to homeschool them, or if uh, you don't have the money to send them to private schools. Uh uh, public utilities, uh, uh, the, the public is just a, a, a kind of less than word, whereas private has a veneer of wealth associated with it. What Purdy points out is this wasn't always so, and in fact the word private comes from the same root as the word privation, lack of. So the private was once considered something that wasn't 
important enough to be public? Is that maybe the best way to put it? Whereas public uh, comes from the same root as our word republic. And, and so if you think mm-hmm. back to the way the ancient Greeks thought about things, uh, Aristotle says outside the polis there is no, uh, there's, there's no virtuous man. A man outside the polis is either a god or a beast. So the idea was you couldn't withdraw from public life if you wanted to be not just a responsible citizen, but even a virtuous private citizen would need to would need to interact with the public sphere. And over the years, because of some of the factors that we talked about in our last episode, uh, the public sphere has has eroded and the private sphere has become more powerful. And the people who have stayed in the public sphere tend to be seen either as milquetoast do-gooders or as cynical manipulators. So they tend to either mm-hmm. be Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. And what strikes me as interesting is that, you know, within our own sphere of operations in the academy, uh, that sort of distinction has obtained, not necessarily in private university, public university, but in the sense that you can't get tenure by being a public intellectual. Uh, You know, the the sort of incentive structure there kind of militates against a whole lot of work in a broader public, right, so that uh, and I mean, this was, you know, eight, ten years ago now, but I remember John Mark Reynolds talking on a podcast about, you know, how his work uh, writing for BeliefNet at the time, he's on Pathios now, there might be 30,000 people who read that, whereas something he publishes in the American Philosophical Association Journal might get read by 300, but it's the latter that will advance him professionally, whereas the former they just consider a hobby, well, I mean, unless you're the very upper escalon of uh, of public intellectual, and even then, you probably got there by doing a good deal of private, let's say, academic work. So you think of somebody like Skip Gates. Skip Gates mm-hmm. has a number of really important books in terms of African American studies, uh, but really, what he's best known for now is beer, the Beer Summit. You know, for being arrested yeah. by for being arrested by a, a cop while he was trying to break into his own house, and then getting invited to the White House uh, to to have a conversation about race. All that you know, I, I thought about that when Purdy was talking about therapeutic politics. Talk about talk about things that don't make any difference. The Beer Summit. Ah, uh, yeah, uh-huh. but. but that being said, Gates is a great academic and a great public intellectual, and it's hard, you know, I don't want to sum up his legacy and in, in his being arrested. That, that's that's exactly what he would not want me to do. Uh, but I think he does get credit for his public intellectual work, although he's so secure at Harvard that I'm pretty sure he could do whatever he wanted. Well, sure. I mean, any of the three of us could probably name a dozen academics who are public intellectuals. Uh, but I imagine each of the three of us could also name a dozen academics just in the English department at UGA. Mm-hmm. Right. Although uh, I think I think we need to tell the story of Cornell West losing tenure at was it I think it was Harvard um, for putting out a rap record instead of an academic book. Do you remember that? Oh yeah, yeah. So I, I, I'm not sure putting out a rap record really qualifies you as a public intellectual either. <laughs> I mean, West West is best known for his book, uh, Race Matters, which yeah. that that is a that is a popular level book that is still seriously mm-hmm. scholarly. So, I th- I think the lines can be a little blurrier, and and ironically enough, I think in the Christian, in the world of Christian academia, they're also a little more blurry. If you think about a lot of the the big name Christian academics in our fields, they're they're publishing quite quite a bit of mm-hmm. a high level popular 
material. Think of like James K. A. Smith. Mm-hmm. His his books are not. I, I don't want to. I don't want to make it sound like I'm insulting him. And see, this is this is exactly what you're talking about. His books are not academic exactly. They're they're scholarly, but they're they're written for people who graduated college who are not necessarily professional philosophers. Right, mm-hmm. right. And my point still stands that you haven't gotten up to a dozen yet, but. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I go ahead david i mean i do think he has a point about about christian ac- academia at least uh within um well yeah i i think there is still a notion of of the idea that uh christian christian academics um serve and when i say uh with specifically within theology and uh, things like that um that they serve the church in some way mm-hmm. and and so they still see themselves as part of um this something larger or ought to see uh the little exercise for young theologians <laughs> episode <laughs> right right but like yeah and like i said i mean we've, we've kind of ventured a field from what purdy was after but i mean it strikes me yeah. that you know this distinction between public and private even extends into a realm that people think of as, you know, sort of anti-capitalist and, you know, uh, mm-hmm. ivory tower rather than real world. Even in our little corner of the universe, there's a, at, at least in a lot of cases, I, I would argue the majority of cases, uh, a privileging of the specialized over the public. Well, one of the things I was wondering as I was reading this section mm-hmm. is... To what degree this this complaint that he had was uh, w- w- was actually about something that's that's specifically novel or American? I mean, it wasn't jaded, cynical twentieth century Americans who cur- who coined the term "hoi polloi." Um, yeah, you know, there's been contempt for the great mass for. A long, 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 long time. Right, right back you know. to Plato, by the way. Yeah, I mean, it, by by the same kinds of people who, um, you know, we would point to as, oh, look, there's the great, great tradition. Um, you know, Aristotle has, uh, you know, read the beginning of the Nicomachean Ethics. Uh, if you like the things that the mass likes, um, you almost certainly need to have your desires disciplined. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But yeah. the other side of that coin, I would argue, is that the people who are somehow elevated among the most common desires and dispositions have mm-hmm. a responsibility to those people to serve them. Well, that's true. Right. Think, the noblesse and I, and, and, is true. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that is something that Purdy points to as having gone away. Okay. But I would, I would definitely agree that that there is there can be no healthy public sphere in a completely populist world like the, mm-hmm. the because the public sphere requires uh intellectual and ethical responsibility i mm-hmm. i just don't think when you have a democratized society the public sphere is ever going to be what purdy wants it to be but this is another difference i have with him i i think he's much more populist than I am. So while I, while I like a lot of when I, while I like a lot of the things he says in this book and elsewhere, I uh, I get I get nervous when he starts to get populist. I mean, it's it's the same argument you and I have over and over again off the podcast, Nathan. You you trust you trust the masses much more than I do. <laughs> yeah, you're right, and you trust 
you know, the elite a lot more than I do. Well, I, mm-hmm. I, I trust an elite made up of the people I think should be elite. So, so, so <laughs> I, I mean, I would, I would, one place we would agree is that corporations shouldn't be ruling our lives. Yeah, we so, certainly agree on that. So, so in that in that sense, I would rather see more power to the people. But I, I guess I, I, I don't know. I, I'm I'm really attracted to the idea that the founders had, which is that uh, you would only be allowed to vote if you owned land. And and you you hear that and you think, oh, it's so classist. But really, my understanding of what that's about is they assumed that people who owned land were capable of being responsible managers. Hmm. Yeah, and 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 you're right that I mean I am more suspicious of that than you are. I, I get, uh, I, I can see the abuses of it, by the way. <laughs> I mean, it's not like I think that would be perfect, but I would, I would, I would be very happy if public life required some sort of, some sort of um, demonstration of responsibility, whatever that looks like. Not like ding, fries are up. You're 18, therefore. Right, right. Well, I mean, lowering the voting age to 18, I think, was a huge mistake just in general. And I get mm-hmm. why that happened too. I get that people were dying in Vietnam and, and it wasn't fair to, to send them to right. a war, but not allow them to vote. But to, to, to raise the drinking age to 21, you can't be responsible enough to drink on your own, but you're responsible enough to vote. Oh, and by the way, we're going to push you to vote. And if you don't vote, you're a bad citizen and it's all your fault. If you don't vote that, that, that is a, that seems profoundly stupid to me. And thus, Michael Farmer summarizes 15% of the freshman papers I received at UGA. <laughs> well, and weed should be legal. I think we can all agree yes. about that, too. Oh, no, no, no. At UGA, it was always the uh, lower the drinking age paper. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, they say, they say write about what you love. <laughs> yeah. Oh, shoot. Well, David, one of this uh, book's moves that resonated most with me is Purdy's challenge to the notion that independence should be an ultimate term to borrow a mm-hmm. Burkeism or a Weaverism. <laughs> Philosophically, what problems does human life run into when the wired or the fast company visions of autonomy become our main aspirations? Well, he starts with the uh, with a contrast that he'd done in uh, earlier chapters, uh, which mm-hmm. we talked about last week, uh, which is the the ironic withdrawal as as a reaction to uh, the world not being as as um, we would like it to be, and then flipped on the other side, uh, a kind of retreat to fantasy, which is the the therapeutic. Um, and both of these he sees as as a failure of this Promethean politics. We're going to get out there and we're going to change the world, and we didn't change the world, so either withdrawal or retreat to fantasy land where we talk as if we're making differences. Mm-hmm. Well, what he presents is this, uh, this, the free agent of fast company magazine and what he calls the digerati of wired mag- magazine, uh, as Promethean individuals. Um, they're not going to remake the world, um, they're just going to remake themselves, and the, uh, uh, the 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 poster child that he gets for this is uh, John Milton Satan. Mm-hmm. Uh, the mind is its own place and can make a hell of heaven and a heaven of hell. 
this is the aim of the ironist's psychic and emotional independence. Uh, so the the idea that you know the, the individual by being you know radically free from the world can pursue their their own agenda and independence and find all of this meaning um, that they haven't got in the public sphere, uh, this sense of fulfillment, etc., um, through a um, a radically private life uh, in which they they make themselves, they make their little world um, in the image that they like. Um, the problem with that, with that kind of independence, with making that the ultimate term, is that you end up in a world that no one else can live in, that no mm. one can live in. It's uh, your world. The rest of us just live there. Wasn't that an advertising slogan in the nineties? I don't remember. I, I I mean, I remember that. I don't remember if it was an ad campaign or something that you know some sort of celebrity gossip reporter said about some larger than life figure. Yeah. Well, who, whatever, whoever said it, that's evil. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I'm always telling my students, um, um, the day that you realize that everyone else in the world are not extras in the movie about you, um, mm-hmm. it, it will be an important day. Oh, but before we go on, I, I just Googled it. I can't find where it originally came from, but I, this is so perfect, I have to point it out. Chelsea Clinton wrote a children's book called It's Your World. <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, I, I think the point, though, is that um, Purdy is not saying that that's a wrong statement. But what it what it means is not therefore withdraw into your own privacy and make of your life what you will. Everyone else be damned. It's mm-hmm. more no. There is this sphere in which you exist, like it or not. This public sphere um, on which you depend for uh, for the goods in your life. Whether as as much as you want to eschew loyalties, avoid dependencies, you have them. Um, inevitably, you have them, and so um, you already have this uh, this responsibility to maintain the common things on which you depend. So that you know the the, the problem with making this ultimate is that it's ultimately destructive. Uh, because you end up with a with a society of individuals who refuse to maintain the things that they all depend on, while refusing to acknowledge that they depend on them. Mm-hmm. What else can we add to that? I, I think that one of the things that Purdy is putting forth here is a sort of late '90s Aristotelian alternative to that individualism and we're going to talk about this at at some length as we keep rolling through this book Mm -hmm. but one of the things that purdy is very aware of in the same way that you know alistair mcintyre and jamie smith and john milbank and all these folks that we cite so often on this show seem to be aware of is that when you privatize human existence when you make uh the community of which you are a part, something that is an obstacle to what you really want to do with your life rather than the stage in on which you do what you do with your life, then you're not uh, cutting away something and therefore freeing yourself to rise higher. You are simply 
locking yourself out of the place where human beings can really be human beings. Mm. And, you know, of course, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, do this uh, in my own inelegant way to avoid, you know, the, the wonderfully economical and precise way that Aristotle puts it, that anthropos is a zoon politicon, that yeah. the human being is the animal who lives in a community. Uh, it is simply our nature to do that. And, you know, one of the one of the challenges that Purdy puts forth is that if you cut yourself off from that, or even worse, if you make cutting yourself from that the ideal, then you are making yourself something subhuman rather than something superhuman. Um, and, and go ahead. Pur- Purdy is not terribly interested in re- religion in this book. I mean, he talks about it a little bit. But yeah. if, if you think about popular evangelicalism, I think you really see you really see this taken to a heretical uh, perspective where, where, you know, there's that, there's a country song that, that says, uh, uh, me and Jesus got our own thing going. I think it's by Tom T. Hall. Uh, and, and I, I really think you see that a lot in contemporary evangelicalism, this idea that my mm-hmm. faith is between me and God and it has nothing to do with any other human being. It has nothing to do with any kind of, church body it has nothing to do with anything beyond my private feelings mm-hmm. and i mean and just, that, just clearly that's that is not the historical witness of the church right right i mean or what you see in the new testament you know and, and, and i'm thinking michael when you're describing that uh at, at least three different occasions that i can think of just recently when you know the song leader in emmanuel's convocation said something along the lines of you know as we, you know, start to sing, just remember that, you know, it's not about the people around you. It's just about you and God. Every, and again, every, uh, I mean, every eye closed. Every yeah, yeah. Bowed. And again, this is not a controversial claim. I mean, this is just, you know, part of the landscape of a lot of the, you know, religious imagination of the evangelical or the relationship imagination, if you think that religion's bad. Are are you guys as uh, are you guys as disturbed? Like you hear this sometimes, and it, it's always upset me. Um, Jesus died for you alone. Have you have you heard that? I've never heard anyone asserted that way. I've heard people say that if you were the only person in the world, right, um, right, or which I mean, you can find variations of that in Julian of Norwich. Yeah, I guess. right. It makes right. me it makes or, me uncomfortable. Yeah, and, and, and I think there's a difference between saying that to medieval peasants mm-hmm. and saying that to middle-class white evangelicals. I mean, I think the audience really does matter there. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, the concept of individualism, I'm sure, existed in the Middle Ages, but it was much less the uh, Franco-lingua. Lingua Franca? Right, right, right. Whatever. Lingua Franca. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But. And, and I guess what I was getting more at is that, you know, ethics is not a science that has a one-time universal best thing to say. Unless but you're it's always a, <laughs> mm. But it's always a rhetorical practice so that the audience in front of you really does matter. Right. Some people need to hear that God would die for you alone if you're living in an existence where you are a, a disposable part of the machinery of a manor. But if you are in a culture where, you know... Uh, have it your way is not even Burger King's slogan anymore. It is, you know, simply the way you exist. They're putting then, it on the money. <laughs> what now? They're going to put it on the money. Yes. Yeah. 
Uh, but, you know, those folks probably don't need to hear that as much. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, but, we didn't talk about this either, but every single children's movie, maybe not every single children's movie, but that is the message of of the vast bulk of children's movies that, that, you know, if you just believe hard enough, you can make the world whatever you want it to be. You can be a snail and still be a, a uh, the fastest person on the planet. I forget what, <laughs> what terrible movie that was. That would be but, Turbo. I have kids at home. Yes. <laughs> and there was magic involved, if I remember correctly. Uh, or I think or, nuclear or at least, radiation, if I remember right. One of the, okay. one of the things that was wonderful. Magic. <laughs> one of the things that was wonderful about Inside Out is that wasn't the message of Inside Out. It's, it's, that, it's that emotions, for example, don't make sense unless conceived of as a group. And thus human beings, because they're all figured as human beings, don't make sense unless they're part of a group. Right, right. And I also liked uh, Monsters You that way because it, it sets you up to think that it's going to be that sort of a story where if you just believe hard enough, you can be the best, you know, children scaring monster there is. But it turns <laughs> out it was all a fraud and moreover, people almost die because of the fraud. So, I mean, I, 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 I generally get irritated when people talk about Disney movies as subversive, but that one I think might have been a little bit. Yeah. Well, I mean, worth worth pointing out, the director of Inside Out, Pete Docter, is a Christian. I don't know if mm-hmm. he did Monsters University. Hmm. Well, there you go. Well, Michael, I, I want to turn to the parable of the investment banker, as I call it. Uh, that story deconstructs another binary, showing that we were dumb to take it on its own terms in the first place. Tell us the story of, if I weren't doing this job, someone else would... And about the the false dilemma, pardon me, of changing the world versus getting ahead. So Purdy runs into a friend of his from Harvard, and they start talking. And it turns out his friend is an investment banker, and the things he invests in uh, is is strip mining, um, where they where they take the top off of a mountain. Uh, to get the coal out, and and Purdy, being a ecologist, environmentalist from. West Virginia hates strip mining maybe more than he hates anything else in this book. Is that accurate? There's, yeah, I think that's fair there's, enough. There's a whole chapter about how much he hates um uh, Even more than irony. Yeah. Right. Yeah, even even or, more than or Bill Clinton. Clinton. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so I think his friend senses that Purdy is horrified by his his life decisions and he, he this is the the excuse he makes that if he this is going to happen. They're going to remove uh, the tops of mountains. Somebody's going to get rich off of it. Why should he take a principled stand when that would just mean he would be fired and that somebody else would come in and make the money instead? So if it's a crap sack world, why can't I just go ahead and make money off of it? Mm -hmm. And this is exactly the sort of... Um, this is exactly the sort of cynical opportunism that that leads the public sphere to be dissolved in favor of the private sphere because there's no there's no sense of what's best for anybody other than Purdy's investment banker friend. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I can argue with that guy though. I mean, I I agree that the guy shouldn't make money off of it, that there's such a thing as purity and he should strive for it. You you know, that the fact that somebody else is going to do it does not justify your doing it. But isn't isn't the fact that somebody else is going to do it true? Uh, Hasn't hasn't that guy already been cast? 
It has been, but I think that what it, what Purdy is reacting against here, and this resonated with me pretty strongly, is the sense of almost an Athenian tragedy going on. That mm-hmm. you know these are gods that we're dealing with, and mere human beings can't ha- possibly take a stand against them. I yes. think against that, Purdy, uh, and here, I mean, listeners, if you want to, you know, chalk it up, this will be time number four that I've said something nice about the Enlightenment. Uh, but I mean. <laughs> Against that, I think Purdy wants to throw down that really, I mean, enlightenment notion. Not that we can, you know, be Prometheans about it, but that politics really is a sphere of human activity and that we should be making arguments and taking stands and acting in order to keep from happening the things that are genuinely preventable. So, in other words, I mean, if we've got, you know, a meteor strike in the earth, that's inevitable. Ain't no one going to stop that. If we've I got saw a movie corpora- about that. Yeah. <laughs> if, we, if we've got corporations strip mining, I mean, there are human beings making those decisions. And I realize, I mean, the, right. the more I talk my way into this, I mean, it's sort of a post-Enlightenment Hegelian Marxist sort of thing that he's doing. But, I mean, I think he's trying to tell an alternate narrative where this is not, you know, impersonal forces that no human being can stop, so you might as well offer your sacrifice to these bloodthirsty gods rather than become their sacrifice yourself. I, I think, I mean, Purdy is saying, forget that. Let's tell the story differently so that there are human beings actually involved. And once again, he's much more optimistic than I can be, I think. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I, I can't imagine a world in which people care enough about mountaintop removal to make a difference to the people who are removing the mountaintops. Well, but maybe that's a failure of imagination on my part. Yeah. I, 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 can, I, I can accept that. Well, two things are happening, I think, when you say that, Michael. Um, the first, I think, is your, your, your recognition that on one level he's right. This isn't a meteor striking the earth, like you said, Nathan, you know, giant hurricanes are not making landfall and taking the tops of the mountains off. Mm. Um, this is, it's an action that's actually a conglomerate of a series of human choices. Um, from, you know, the top levels of government all the way down to the guy that drives a backhoe. Mm. But at the same time, I think Michael, you're, you're informed by this, you know, Augustinian Calvinist, this Christian notion that human beings have got this dark heart and that all of these individuals making all of these choices can, in general, without some kind of common or special grace, be reckoned on to make the most self-serving of those choices. Um, so that it's not necessarily the natural force of a tornado so much as it is the generally fairly predictable um, force of of human sin and I don't think but I, but I don't think Purdy thinks that way no I don't think uh, he does and I would to, to that I would add that when you have enough human beings banded together in the form of a corporation and it has enormous political power when it you know I don't think it I don't think it's it's really debatable that corporations to a large extent, control the laws in this country no i don't think that's yeah i mean i don't think that's controversial i I, I mean at that point aren't you basically dealing with an inhuman natural force aren't you basically dealing with with an unstoppable hurricane of 
bureaucracy. Well, how is that any more inhuman than the government itself? Well, I agree with that too. Because it is still a series of humans with their with their own agendas banded together in order to do something in cooperation. And yeah, they have a whole lot of force together, but the fact that their end is profit to the investors and employment to the employees doesn't make it a different kind of thing than any other joint human endeavor. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess what frustrates me, Michael, is that if human beings as a species were just generally incapable of resisting such things, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think I would resign myself to it more easily. But I mean, you look historically and I mean, you know, the human species or at least a hunk of the human species standing against another hunk of the human species uh, mm-hmm. resisted communism. All of these things that in their own moment would have seemed just human inevitabilities, right? Right. Uh, so, so again, I mean, we're, we're back to my lacking the imagination, the political imagination to, to see this happen. And that's why I realize this is a short book, but I do wish that Jedediah Purdy had done more with the imagination as a concept and with poetic language as a vehicle for imagination, because I really do think that what he's talking about here, he does a nice job of doing so in sort of journalistic reporting and, you know, philosophical categories. But historically that hasn't been what has changed the imagination of people groups. Right. Uh, one of the things that I think our moment in history lacks, uh, is a strong, poetic voice you know whether you're talking about saint paul or whether you're talking about dante or whether you're talking about someone whose poetry can really get people to imagine reality differently Mm. yeah but see i mean it it was always like this i shouldn't i shouldn't romanticize the middle ages this time where everybody read dante i I mean most of the art that people consume is superhero movies. And what are you, you going to do with that? Yeah, point taken, point taken. Well, one thing um, I thought about, uh, especially I was reading more about the coal mining stuff, is the way that he writes about, uh, the way that he writes about the landscape, the way that he loves it, um, mm-hmm. is also a move to change, uh, to change desires, to make, to make people desire intact mountaintops. Mm-hmm. And, it made me think of uh, in a second composition class here at HBU. It's sort of an intro to lit. Um, it's a pretty common thing. Anyway, the novel that I teach is The Hand of the Baskervilles, mm-hmm. which which describes Dartmoor in England as this vast waste space full of natural beauty and um, old Neolithic ruins and uh, you know, it's the landscape is really the star of the book, but that is not what Dartmoor looked like when that book was published in like 1902, something like that. Um, mm-hmm. There were mining operations, there were industrial operations. It was a big wasteland that wasn't good for farming, and so they, it was turned to industry. And one of the effects of this book of popular fiction was to um, awaken a certain amount of the English public to the beauty of what Dartmoor had been so that, mm-hmm. so that, uh, preservation societies for, for the Moors started to, uh, started to develop. And yet it took time, 
But now, if you look, you know, go to Google Earth and look for the moors in England, and they're all wildlife preserves. Mm -hmm. You know, um, it can take time, but a lot of what happens is, um, you know, if, if sometimes the failure to address these things comes through a particular kind of imagination, sometimes what fixes them is a kind of imagination too, and it can even come from unlikely sources. And, and I mean, ten minutes ago I was praising Inside Out for doing just that sort of imagination, and that is a movie a lot of people saw. So, as mm -hmm. usual, I am being overly pessimistic. I get that. <laughs> well, David, I, I want to turn from optimism and pessimism to obligation and responsibility. And I'm going to read a passage from page 107 of this book at length. And I want you to talk both about its place in the larger argument and whether this landed with you as it did with me as a much needed and well-built framework within which to situate liberty. So here's the passage, quote, obligation to the commons then requires not the return of hereditary obligation, but the self-discipline of liberty it is the mark of our freedom that we can ignore any tradition and refuse any loyalty. We are at liberty to be entirely self-concerned. Our freedom, though, does not prohibit seriousness of purpose. It may be that it can come to maturity only by undertaking such seriousness. Close quote. What sayst thou, Grubbs? Is that a conservative manifesto that you would sign? <laughs> well, I, I don't know how I'd have answered... Um a few days ago, but over the past couple of days, I've been listening through to uh, the City of Man discussions of what conservatism is. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think I might answer differently now. Okay. Shameless, shameless plug, dear listeners. <laughs> well, probably the first thing uh, would be, uh, in, 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 it depends on what you mean by conservative. Um, mm -hmm. I would definitely say that this is a good manifesto for what you might call a kind of principled libertarianism, mm -hmm. right? And which still, which says that, that, that yes, there is this kind of ultimate liberty to, as it says, ignore the traditions and refuse the loyalties. But nonetheless, there is a kind of principled interest in taking those on freely. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, uh, you know, in more his, uh, a more historically conservative notion, as I've been learning, um, wouldn't say that we are uh, that we are free to ignore the traditions. Um, however, if you say American conservatism, um, mm. part of the part of the American tradition is our freedom to ignore the traditions. <laughs> so. You know, uh, uh, on one level, I would see this uh, as as a kind of um, a, 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 an American conservatism, a, 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 a an acknowledgement of there is this ethos within America that he's been talking about since the beginning of the book, um, which is this this freedom, uh, this freedom of the individual. We aren't shaped by traditional class structures and uh, all the rest of that. Um, that's the tradition that we receive is that, but that mm -hmm. there is a, they, there is a principled way of saying, yes, I am free. And therefore, because I am free, I'm, I'm, I'm actually free to undertake, um, a, a, a serious obligation. I don't have to take the obligation, but I can undertake it as, as a, as a kind of fulfillment and maturity of my freedom. Mm. Um, 
I like that. The within the context, um, what he then goes on to to talk about is uh, is these free individuals who don't have this outside obligation that demands this on them. Um, under uh, taking on what he calls a, 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 a circumscribing of themselves. Uh, he doesn't say limiting, but it's rather uh, an, an accepting of a, a particular sphere that ends up, um, ends up meaning that they don't have all the options. Um, mm-hmm. Settling in a place and determining to stay there for for the good of that place, and so you know, learning to be in it uh, uh, in a, in a particular kind of way. It's 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 sort of working back again towards um, what I think a, a former generations of human cultures. Um, would have just sort of been born into and accepted. This is this is where I live, and this is what we do. Um, this is saying, yeah, you do have that radical choice to say no mm-hmm. to that inherited tradition, um, but the right free choice might be to say yes and to choose it freely. That this this reminds me a lot of you know we've been talking about evangelicals. This reminds me a lot of what we tell, um, especially teenagers and um, students who are going off to college of the need to have their own faith, Mm -hmm. which uh, on one level can work in the direction of you don't need anybody else. But on the other hand, it can be also working in the direction of um, you need to be a, a willing, a voluntary, a free participant in this communal thing that we're doing and not Mm. just on autopilot. Um, You need to make it your thing, not because... um, not because you get to make up your own thing, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but because you need need to own it as yours. You need to take responsibility for it as yours. Um, Yeah. I yeah, I mean, I, when I read this passage, I, because I talked to Roger Scruton here recently over on Christian Humanist Profile, since we're plugging mm-hmm. other shows in the network, uh, I, I heard a lot of echoes of Scruton's project here that, you know, a coerced uh, charity basically, you know, invites people to try to cheat it so mm-hmm. that, you know, for Scruton, and I mean, he goes farther in this direction than I do, but I mean, to say that I'm not as conservative as, as Roger Scruton. I don't think is too much of a surprise. Um, but, you know, he says that, you know, any kind of human community that's going to do anything significant in the world has to be rooted in that liberty. And the instant you fall to the temptation to make it something other than a free commitment, it's going to self-destruct. And like I said, I mean, you know, I, I don't go as far that direction as he does, but I definitely see the truth in what he's saying there that uh, in our moment, in a way that might not have been true in the 11th century, say, mm-hmm. uh, liberty is a, a, a necessary but not a sufficient condition for real change. Mm-hmm. Michael, am, am, have, have I gone from being a uh, commie to a libertarian here? I don't know. I, I just think pragmatically, 
it's going to be so hard to purge the notion of autonomy from the American psyche that we may as well try to work within it. Mm-hmm. And, and to say, well, if the only way we're going to get any kind of community commitment is by emphasizing your autonomy to do so, let's do it. That, that's better than the alternative, right? It's better. They're gonna. They're, people are gonna see themselves as autonomous beings either way. At least mm-hmm. this way, we can get some of that responsibility back into right. it. Right. Right. And I mean, honestly, it takes time to unlearn that imagination. If we're being fair about it. Yeah. Well, yeah and like the, the truth is, those those autonomously chosen commitments will eventually uh, um mold the concept of autonomy a little bit it'll 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 mm-hmm. change what it looks like i don't want to say it'll undermine it right right mm-hmm. well michael i mean when we talk about autonomy i mean we're talking about a certain kind of political imagination that assumes that any kind of public talk is unreal so when we move on to the next chapter chapter four what sort of picture does purdy paint when he talks about that unreality of political speech and did you find his res- in his response as much existentialism as I found there? Existentialism or virtue ethics? I don't know. At yeah, a I, tend, point, I, I, think, t- I tend to ru- I tend to run the two together. I do too. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he says he says that we we perceive political speech as unreal, and I I think one of the reasons for that is that political speech is largely unreal. Which is a which is a case he made, I think, very eloquently in the first chapter. That mm-hmm. in the failure of Promethean politics, all we get is therapeutic politics or utter irony and cynicism. So, I mean, mm-hmm. when 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 the beer summit is is a major political statement, I think I think people seeing political speech as unreal is a reasonable way to see it. I think the bigger point is that political speech isn't necessarily unreal. It, that that may be the the reality of our particular political moment, but it doesn't have to be that way. And and the only way it's not going to be that way is if enough people start treating it as if it actually meant something, first on the grassroots level, and then probably on the uh, the level of the actual people making these political speeches. Mm-hmm. The society can't function well if political speech doesn't mean anything for some of the same reasons we've been talking about, right? The, the public sphere is absolutely necessary for the development of the private person. What he says, um, what he says in response, I'm just going to quote him. Every law and each political choice is in part a judgment about the sort of country we will inhabit and the sort of lives we will lead. There is no escaping this fact, only the possibility of evading it for a period as we are trying to do. At best, ignoring necessity is reckless, at worst is destructive. And I, I assume that's where you're seeing the existentialism, the idea mm-hmm. that, that mm-hmm. the existentialists say that by your every action you create not just yourself, but you create an ideal vision of what human beings are supposed to be. Uh, right, right. Probably don't mean to be doing that, but that's what you do. And, he, and he's saying right. this, the it, same. It's, it's the character of action. Right, right. So we have this writ large. When we make a law, even when we make a political speech, we are making a statement about what sort of person we want our society to shape people into. Now, again, that's not how most people think. I went to a debate. This was 2014. It was a debate between two people running for state senate. One was a uh, one was the the sixty something mayor of a small town near my college, and the other was a twenty three year old Democrat kid straight out of college. Uh, you can imagine, you can imagine how frustrating this was. 
But the thing that made me angrier than any other thing is that the the Democrat candidate said the government has no right to tell you how to live your lives. Which is a, like, what kind of Democrat are you? What's what sort of believer in government? Of course, the government has the right to tell you how to live your life. That's what the government does. What we disagree about is the ways in which it should be shaping the citizenry. But mm-hmm. deep down, I don't understand why you would have a government if you don't think that in some sense they're supposed to mold citizens into being what people are supposed to be. The, the disagreement comes about what people are supposed to be. And in fact, right, I, I, right. I suspect a lot of our laws are made by people who don't think that's what laws are supposed to do. Just to, just to give you an example, we had a big meeting um, uh, 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 at my college a couple days ago because there's a new federal regulation that says – Anybody who makes less than $50,000 a year can't work more than 40 hours a week without getting time and a half overtime. So that means salaried people who are making $49,000 a year have to, uh, have to, have to fill out a, a time card, basically. Mm-hmm. And, and this is an asinine law to me. Both, by the way, faculty are exempted. We're, we are the, apparently the one exception to this law. So don't, <laughs> don't get too excited, guys, because otherwise, man, can you imagine? I work about 70 hours a week. Um, but but what, what kind of person are we trying to make with this law? What, what exactly is this supposed to accomplish? Because I, I suspect what it will accomplish is keep a bunch of people from working mm-hmm. to improve their company. It, it's, not, it's, not gonna, it's not actually going to help anybody, I don't think. Well, and and does that include does that include the self-employed? Yeah, I don't know about that. You know. Anyway. But 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 again, what 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 is the what is the purpose of this law, and what in what sense are we trying to make our citizens better people, happier people? I, I was going to say more productive, but that's not a great. It's certainly, <laughs> it's certainly not going to make them more productive. In fact, I suspect what it's going to do is uh, incentivize companies to replace jobs with machines which we mm-hmm. definitely we don't need them to have more incentives for that right well the other thing is that it, it does something that um you know and, and and i get the sense that jedediah purdy is very sympathetic to the causes of you know advocacy for for labor laborers and all the rest of that i i, I get that sense but at the same time um, he also thinks that people should see a value in what they do. Yeah, um, yeah. You're and with and them it there, seems right? like right, and it seems like this particular kind of law um, alienates people from their work in a specific kind of way. Um, you know, if because what what I see happening is that. Uh, is I see a bunch of bosses saying, "No, you can't stay and finish that." Right. Which <laughs> I, I guess I guess you can see that this was supposed to take some pressure off people. That it was I, I guess it was supposed to give them a home life, you know, because mm-hmm. a lot of people I, I guess do feel like they are they are forced by the market to work eighty hour weeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or, or else they'll replace you with someone who does. So, right. so maybe, the other side of that, yeah. Maybe I'm being maybe I'm being too hard on this law. I, I I have the advantage of having a job where I like to work extra hours, where a lot of people don't. Mm-hmm. So I'm backing yeah, down. I, well, well, yeah, and uh, I was going to come to this law's defense if if you didn't first, Michael. So I'm glad that you articulated mm-hmm. that. I mean, I I I think that it's probably too blunt an instrument. 
Uh, and I mean, you know, that that's where my own conservative streak comes in is that I think that trying to legislate one size fits all solutions probably ain't the way to go. Uh, but I do see a, a good that can come from telling companies you have to let your workers go home sometimes. Yeah, I, I really didn't think about <laughs> yeah. it from that side. Yeah. And if you don't, then you're, you have to pay more money for that. So ultimately, it is to your benefit to hire more people rather than work the ones you've got 70 hours a week. But the problem is they're not going to hire more people. They're going to they're gonna replace them with people, that, with entities they don't have to pay. Well, and I mean, I, if, if that's the case, I mean, then, you know, you can either talk about that in the language of Greek gods that we've upset the, you know, the twin <laughs> almighty deities of supply and demand. Or you can say that there's some real jerks up there wearing suits that, you know, we probably need to get in their ear. And I'm sorry, my, my, my inner Woody Guthrie is starting to emerge here. <laughs> and, 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 and we're back to my lacking the political imagination to think we can, that we're going to be able to convince companies not to replace. I mean, come on, look at what happened with outsourcing. Look at the, yeah, look yeah, at the well, gutting of the American heartland that, that happened there. And I, I just, I, I think that in theory that could have been stopped, but I think realistically, no way. Well, and I mean, this is why whatever labor movement emerges next has to be an international one. Yeah. Because eventually, you know, the the companies will run to whatever corner of planet they can get to to exploit human lives and destroy them. But if they run out of planet, then up yours. Man, Sorry. you are a commie. <laughs> I really am. <laughs> Can't we just blast them into outer space? <laughs> Man, I, I yeah, I don't know. I don't know what's wrong with me this morning, but yeah, I mean, my. Uh, <laughs> I, I just I just feel like so much of this is going to take demanding that people with an enormous amount of power have a public responsibility, a consciousness of public responsibility, and I am I am deeply suspicious that that can happen. Well, I mean, that's one possibility. The other possibility is you get enough workers at the same time to say, this is all we're going to work and we ain't going to work no more. To, to and then, because they have nothing to lose but their chains? Oh, that could be one possibility. But, but or, what, what keeps okay. them from firing them all and replacing them with a machine? Who's going to well, fix the machines? The guys in suits? Oh, yeah. Okay. So t- <laughs> tending the machine. Well, you, you've seen the Maytag yeah. man, right? You're talking. You're well, talking about a tenth of the jobs. Yeah. But even even then, automation is not not at the moment isn't isn't the cure all that they would really like it to be. Yeah. Not right. yet. But they're talking about being able to replace doctors and lawyers with machines. Oh yeah, yeah. And I mean, when that happens, I mean, I, I don't know what happens next because at this point we've extended past my political imagination. But I mean, eventually, when you know the global unemployment rate peaks seventy percent, seventy-five percent, something's going to happen. Some tech entrepreneurs' heads are going to be on pikes. Is what's going to happen? Well, that that could be. I mean, that is the violent revolution option. There are other <laughs> historical <laughs> possibilities, though. I would yeah. like the tech entrepreneurs to invent a machine that replaces tech entrepreneurs. <laughs> That's nice. That's nice. 
Well, how do you get a robot to act believably pompous, though? Yeah, well, they're so interested in disrupting everybody else's job, telling us how how their machines can do it better. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What we need yeah. is some kind of like human John Henry to beat the steam hammer. John Henry is my hero. Uh, yeah. Although, uh, you know, one one solution that I've heard of on a uh, in our corner of the world is a uh, uh, massively online. Uh, administration rather than you know massively online courses we'll we'll, we'll just you know record a youtube clip of someone saying you know we need to you know reach the consumers that are coming through our doors best practices best practices best practices Uh, there you go there you go (laughs) did you ever see that simpsons episode where they threaten to replace the djs with a machine and it's like those jokers in congress are up to it again (laughs) <laughs> that's, nice. that's nice well anyway david i i'm, I'm gonna put my uh, inner woody guthrie back on a leash here and ask you <laughs> this question i mean the end of chapter four reminded me a great deal of george orwell's essay politics politics pardon me and the english language and of chesterton's meditations on abstract language and orthodoxy what kinds of abstractions is purdy going after in this chapter on political language and what other context might that lesson translate into? Well, here's the uh, the bit that he's looking at. He talks about, uh, well, first, uh, uh, Tocqueville was already commenting on how Americans in his day, um, and this is pretty, used abstract words more readily than concrete ones, mm-hmm. um, and spoke as if, uh, quote, eventualities were just as real as the worry that tearing down a mountain might release acid water into local spring, into local streams. Now, so he's in the, in this context of, of strip mining, of, um, taking the tops off of mountains and filling in valleys. And it's not a good Isaiah kind of thing. Um, the, and in particular, a speech by, the guy who was uh, in Secretary of the Interior, Environment, some, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, Secretary of the Interior, Bruce Babbitt, um, giving this speech, looking at this you know mountain that has had the top of it lopped off, saying, wow, look at this natural wilderness that we've restored by mining. Um, just bizarre. Just this mm-hmm. bizarre moment, right? Um you know, I'm not going to be chaining myself to a whale anytime soon, but but that's crazy town. <laughs> um, but uh, what he's what he's talking about is 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 this? Uh, we risk making the same mistake every time we speak of well-being and efficient energy production without understanding that we are discussing whether or not to tear down mountains, not mountains in general, but the peaks of a few thousand square miles of central Appalachia or the site of the Battle of Blair Mountain. Um, so the, 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 the abstraction that he's talking about uh, is, in particular, an, abstract in, an abstraction in political language that um, glosses over the, uh, the cost of particular, uh, of, of particular choices, that, that glosses over... Um, what the what those effects what those effects will 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 actually be um, this this mountain that has stood um, 
you know, for ages will be gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I, 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 I agree with him that that's, uh, that retreat into euphemistic abstraction, uh, is, is really dangerous. Uh, the interesting thing to me though, is that, um, while he is, he spends most of his energy talking about coal mining, um, I kept thinking of it in in terms of uh, uh, the way the way folks in the political sphere uh, political sphere talk about the unborn. Mm-hmm. Um, which I, I I don't know that he would um, necessarily appreciate that, but um, you know, good for goose, good for gander. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there, there are many ways in which um, the this this kind of um, useful euphemistic abstraction is 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 a way of glossing over the fact that um, somebody's life got wrecked, somebody's weeping now, but um, but hooray, hooray! Our abstract God term um, has been uh, has been exalted. Let us all celebrate. Mm-hmm. To, to take it back to City of Man, I mean, one of the points Coyle makes is that this is a hallmark of traditionalist Russell Kirk-style conservatism. Mm-hmm. A group that mm-hmm. I, I suspect Purdy doesn't have a whole lot of affection for, if I had to guess, but it just goes to show you how once you get beyond the two-party system in America, there, there's lots of touching points on the weirdo right and the weirdo left. I won't say the extreme right <laughs> and the extreme left, but the weirdo right and the weirdo left. <laughs> the crun- the crunchy cons and the socialists are not a million miles apart. No, they're not. They're really not. And in fact, I mean, you know, the uh the radical orthodoxy movement in, you know, British theology and the the corresponding red Tory movement in British politics demonstrates that, you know, just that sort of political imagination is possible. I mean, these folks have, you know, won seats in parliament before. When we were talking about the Russell Kirk, you mean the, the the tendency towards abstraction or the fighting against it? Uh, fighting against it. Okay. Yeah, it's yeah, also, yeah. by okay. the way, a That's hallmark of existentialism. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is this is where all my interests come together. Is is anti-abstraction? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, the, the yeah. actual concrete existent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Right. I, Go ahead, it, David. It reminds me of something that uh, you know my pastor was uh, uh, talking about. Uh, Few, few Sundays ago, he was talking specifically about, you know, how we can talk kind of casually be about the economy is recovering or there is a downturn or things like that. But, um, you know, going to lunch with uh, a friend of his who I, I don't think is a member of our church, uh, who is in management and you know, having to tell the story of being the man who sits down across the desk from a series of employees and says, I'm sorry, we're going to have to let you go because we can't afford to keep, to keep you here. And, um, you know, get the, I want, I want, I want to, um, I mean, not, not, not to succumb completely to, uh, what can become the sentimental, right? As long as suffering has a face, then we must do something about it. 
right? Um, Although Adam Smith had a point there. Say what? Although Adam Smith did have a point there that, I mean, sentiment really is a function, uh, is really is an engine of moral action. No, that's true. That's true. Um, but you can always find, you know, for, for, for pretty much any particular, you know, principled discussion, um, you can find somebody who's suffering on either side. Life Mm -hmm. is guilt. Yeah. Life is guilt. Um, you know, ultimately being able to point that out doesn't, um, doesn't end the conversation. Oh, look, we made someone cry. Therefore, um, but at the same time, dancing around it is, uh, I, I think a worse, a worse kind of, a worse kind of evil. Um, and trying to say, you know, the suffering faces that you see on your side are unreal, or we're going to ignore them with a series of abstractions. I, I guess the honest thing to do would be to say, yes, when we make policy X, there are people who will not be happy with that, who will suffer from that in particular kinds of ways. But there is this worse specific particular thing that we are trying to avoid by doing that. Well, uh, yeah. And I mean, I guess that's people, more honest. <laughs> yeah. If, if people would name that, mm-hmm. I'd, I think that would be a step in the right direction to say it is ultimately worthwhile for your children to be on the street because if we didn't, then this would happen. Mm-hmm. Then the media, the meteor would strike earth. Yeah, I mean, speak that sentence and, you know, at, at the very least, we'll be taking a step in the direction of telling the truth. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, yes, your children will not be able to stay in marching band for the remainder of their high school because we can't afford to pay that. But mm-hmm. because of that, we will be able to keep these teachers and stay in business. Because of that, mm-hmm. we'll be able to have three sports instead of two is probably more likely. Yeah, I was thinking about like middle school and high school. <laughs> oh, I was talking about high school. Oh, yeah, okay. I, I thought he was talking about high school. <laughs> yeah. Well, at any rate, guys, we have uh, we have run long on this one. I mean, this book gives us a lot of material for discussion. It basically pushes cr- every button all three of us have. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's kind of nice that way. Uh, but as you know. As with any text that we try to, you know, take on in, you know, the space of one podcast, we've missed some things. So I want to go around the horn here at the end. Uh, I want each of you to talk about a high point that we could have talked about but didn't. Uh, Michael, go ahead and start this round. Um, I'm going to take issue with him for a second. He complains about this take-it-or-leave-it strain of post-enlightenment politics, and he talks specifically about Jefferson and Thoreau. And he says, quote, they're inner immigrants whose first loyalty is to conscience or some particular freely chosen and often dissenting moral community. And, and I, I get what he's saying, but I have to take issue. I don't think most inner immigrants, as he puts it, really experience their moral communities as being freely chosen. I think most people feel like their moral communities chose them and they don't have an option other than to be faithful to them. 
Second, mm-hmm. I think it's pretty clear that as Christians, we are supposed to feel ourselves to be inner immigrants living in a world that's not our home. And again, his his general disinterest, which is fine in religion, leaves a space for us to talk about it. Because I'm not sure what public actions of Christians should look like. And maybe that's a question for the Anabaptists on one hand and the Calvinists on the other. I mean, to, to what extent mm-hmm. should we see ourselves as involved in American public life when we don't believe our primary citizenship belongs to America. Mm-hmm. And we don't have time to parse that out, but I <laughs> thought I'd just throw it out there. David? We don't have time to parse it out, but I'll poke it a little bit more. Uh, he talks about, in, uh, in the uh, third chapter, he talks about what he calls three ecologies that we exist in. Uh, the the private or moral ecology, which is primarily composed of personal relationships, um, those those particularities of your develop particularly your, your your developmental years when you are building your notions of value and virtue, um, and what is good to do in life. Uh, from that, he moves to the public sphere, which he defines primarily as a kind of political sphere, and then. Outside of that uh, is the uh, the sphere of nature, the sphere of this ecology that we all live in, as this this you know this this common thing that we all have and all depend on and all need. Um, and in in that whole dis- discussion, I was uh, uh, realizing again how profoundly secular uh, his his vision of this good society is. Because I don't know where he would put um, faith or church in that. And when I say those two words, um, faith, I think, would be instinctively set inside of that moral ecology, which is about personal things. And church seems to fit more in that public ecology, which is about communi- you know, communitarian things. And again, we could have our argument between our Anabaptist and our Calvinists. Um, notice, that, a, notice that David accidentally said Anabastards. <laughs> that's not actually, that isn't, yeah, that's not true. Um, Aging Dr. Freud. <laughs> Anabaptist. Um, yeah, I was also, I was, I was also thinking about, you know, Catholics. Um, where do, you know, where do they fit in that as well? Um, because, you know, as, as a Christian, I like his idea of thinking of these different spheres that we are unavoidably part of, but I feel like there's a, a super important thing. You know, I believe in the communion of the saints. Um, where does that fit? <laughs> anyway. Interesting. And I'm, I'm going to go slightly more, uh sympathetic direction and just say that I, I find it fascinating that uh, even in the absence of explicit theological commitments, mm-hmm. uh, although I, I think, you know, Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, if he were to, you know, jump in Bill and Ted's time machine and read this book, he would say there's a lot of latent Christianity in this book that's not being acknowledged. Huh. Uh, I find it fascinating that, you know, this is a thoroughly traditionalist and thoroughly communitarian vision of the good life that David's right doesn't have that place for the church as human community, but does, and I'll, and I'll, I'll say this in praise of the book, 
offer some kind of alternative to the atomized individualism and then the basically, you know, corporate vending machines that mm-hmm. seem to be running the world in 1999 and also, honestly haven't uh, turned loose all that much here in 2016. So uh, yeah. I do I do appreciate it, but I will grant to David that if we Christians are to read it and to, you know, incorporate this imagination, it's going to involve some translation. Well, folks, uh, this was a long one today, I think, although we had some tech, so we, we had some gremlins today, so I don't know how long it'll end up being. Uh, next week, Michael, what shall we discuss? Well, obviously, we'll discuss the last two chapters of this book. What a grand idea. <laughs> In the meantime, listeners, uh, of course, you know, find this book, get a, get a copy of it. I know mine was relatively cheap online at Amazon.com because, yes, I am an utter hypocrite when it comes to multinational corporations. If they will sell me a a cheap book, I will, uh, you know, sit up nice and speak when they tell me to. Uh, But in the meantime, you can find us on ChristianHumanist.org. You can find us on Facebook. You can go to iTunes, leave us a five-star review, get some more people rolling in this conversation. You can email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. The Christian Humanist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our intern, although not for long, I fear, is Amber Lee Copeland. We'll have her next and, year, too. Oh, will we? Oh, well, shoot. I, I was about to sing some Michael W. Smith. Uh, but <laughs> in lieu of Michael W. Smith, I just dated myself, didn't I? I'll instead leave you with uh, the words of Luther, let your sins be strong. Let your faith be stronger.